You're listening to the Third Cup of Coffee podcast. Good day, podcast listeners. This is Randy Bolander on the Third Cup of Coffee podcast, and I trust that this podcast finds you deep into the third cup of coffee zone. If you're drinking the first or the second cup already today, let me just encourage you, swig those down. You want to get right to that third cup because that's where the creativity is unlocked. Did you know that scientists all over the world will tell you that the best discoveries they've ever made have been after the third cup of coffee? Don't ask me which specific scientists or what discoveries, but I am sure that somewhere in white lab coats, there are men and women drinking the third cup of coffee, and they are stepping into the genius zone. Who knows what they're going to discover today, and who knows what you could discover today? If you drink enough coffee, anything could happen. Hey, before I get into today's content, let me encourage you to go back to a bonus episode that we put out on Friday. I did a 45-minute interview with Pastor an author and mentor of mine, Steve Shogren. And we talked about his planting of the Cincinnati Vineyard, what it was like in the very early days. The church went on to grow to be about 6,000 people, but the first couple of years in Steve's description were a complete bomb. He said it was terrible. Before his first Sunday, he invited 1,000 people to church. Now, this was before the days of email and Facebook. This was looking people in the eye and saying, will you come to church? 37 out of 1,000 came. In spite of those small beginnings, what God did there in Cincinnati and continues to do is just remarkable. I think you'll learn a lot. Um, I think for some of you, you'll understand me a little bit better, understanding that Steve is probably one of the primary influences on my thinking, and uh, you will, you'll be challenged. Let me just encourage you. Go back, listen to that bonus episode. Today, I want to uh, plug in the audio from my teaching on Sunday. As I taught on the idea of new wineskins, why does the Lord initiate new things when he has perfectly good and functioning old things? And that whole passage about new wineskins, it's not a bust on the old wineskins at all. In fact, he says, if you tasted the old wine, you're not going to even like the new wine. But there is a reason he does new things, and there's a reason he launches new churches and new fellowships and new initiatives. And it has less to do with the wine and more to do with flexibility, because the old wineskins have stretched about as far as they're going to stretch. Kelsey and I are in the process of launching a church in the Kansas City area. And so this message gives us a little framework for that, a little of the thought process, and some of the things that I feel the Lord is speaking to us about this new fellowship. I hope you enjoy it, and I hope you get back and listen to that interview with Steve, because it is phenomenal. Let's jump right on into it. This is the message from Sunday on New Wineskins. Um, If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Luke chapter 5, and we are going to be there most of the... uh, most of the morning, we'll jump out a couple of places here and there, but but pretty much all uh, Luke five. I am I am not a hardcore planner. Kelsey will attest to this that planning is probably not my uh, my forte. Um, but when it comes to preaching or teaching, I kind of am. I am not a Saturday night sermon writer. If it is Saturday night and there is no sermon, there will be no sermon. It's just not going to happen. And so uh, usually by Thursday. 
I've got a pretty good idea of where we are going and, and actually a lot of things written down now because that's just kind of how I'm wired. Um, but it was an interesting week in that by Thursday, I had nothing. I had, I had, was not, it wasn't just I was a little confused. I had nothing written down. And so uh, I got up early that morning, about 5.30, started to pray, started to journal, jot some things down. And by 8.30, I had three really bad ideas already already knocked out three awful ideas i had nothing good and, and the sad part is those bad ideas may circle up later when they're a good idea but for this week they were not a good idea and uh i was struggling and by 8 30 i looked at kelsey and i said i've got to go for a walk here because i got to get my head clear and i went out for a walk and just began to ask the lord specifically what he had for for today because i it just felt different and uh in about a 15 minute walk i just seemed to get a bit of a download and got some bullet points, came back and I said, okay, I've got it. I can do this. And I sat down to write. Now this message is going to be like uh, others, but it's also going to be different. Uh, when I teach, I always like to start with the Bible. I am not smart enough or godly enough to start anywhere else. So we always want to start and stay in scripture. And normally I take a passage and I kind of teach it somewhat contextually. Um, and we're going to do that this morning, but we're going to do a little more than that. And in a way, this message uh, has a bit of a prophetic edge or is, is almost uh, in part a prophetic word. I want to stay true to the text, but also share some things that are on my heart specifically for this family that God is gathering in this season. Now, when I call it partially a prophetic word, don't let that set off alarm bells in your head if you've got strange experiences with that. Uh, every message that is preached should have some sort of prophetic edge to it doesn't mean it's weird. It doesn't mean it gives necessarily personal directive. Um, much of the Old Testament prophets, what they did in the way of prophecy was clearly uh, describing what was happening in the moment. Now, oftentimes they spoke about the future, but often they also spoke about what was happening very clearly in the moment. When you think about the prophet Nahum, or, uh, uh, Naaman, who went, is it Naaman or Nathan? Went to David. Nathan. I should have looked this up. Here I am going off the top of my head. The prophet went to David and said, you know, you are the man. He called him out on his sin. It wasn't a forward thing. It was, the, he clearly saw the moment. And so when I say this is a bit of a prophetic word, I believe it's because the Lord is showing some, me some things clearly in the moment um, that I want to say to you. And particularly in light of the past season of our lives, um, some of this may be ripe for misinterpretation. I want to encourage you to resist the temptation to think that I'm saying more than I'm saying, okay? Hear what I'm saying, but don't, don't read into it. There aren't any coded messages. Uh, that's not my style. Um, I'm not being elusive. Uh, this message is not about the past or other people. This is a message about the present and the future, and this is a message about us. And I think if you hear me out, you'll understand really what I'm saying. I feel uh, that today, along with Tuesday and praying together about what is next, it's kind of a watershed moment for this little group. And so that's what I'm feeling. Luke chapter 5, um, we're going to start in verse 33, and I'm going to read or 35, I guess. And I want to read, no, 33. I want to read six verses that record an interaction that Jesus had with kind of the old religious guard where they challenge his behavior. Uh, think about that for a minute. You know, if you've ever challenged anybody, you take a certain amount of nerve. How self-righteous do you have to be to call Jesus on the carpet? Like how, how full of yourself do you have to be to challenge a man who is doing miracles and walking on water and people are seeing the miraculous in his life? 
Uh, by this time in his life, he's already cast out a demon. He's cleansed a leper. He has healed many people. He is not full of himself. He's full of the Holy Spirit. And he makes them very nervous because he is not auditioning for an internship with the Pharisees. He is not interested in joining their little band. He really didn't need them, and that made them nervous. It's so interesting that the religious leaders of the day were blind to what children and fishermen and tax collectors would be able to see clearly. They didn't see the authority on his life because they were too distracted because he did not fit the mold of a religious leader. People have a powerful ability to overlook the obvious if it stands in opposition to their own position or what they want to believe. We see that today. People interpret current events in light of what they thought before they saw the current event. That's just how they do it. And it's really how the Pharisees did it. And Jesus' response to them is insightful as how he goes about doing things and really, I think, pertinent to our own community. Now, this passage of text is found in three different places. It's found in Matthew and in Mark and in Luke, almost word for word. It's one of the most parallel passages in the Gospels. Uh, but for the sake of discussion, I wanted to read the passage from Luke because Luke goes on to include one extra thing that Jesus, has said, Jesus said. Matthew and Mark don't mention it, but Luke, Luke tells us a little bit more of the details. Sometimes Luke is more detailed um, in a lot of different stories, and in this one, he includes one more sentence. So Luke uh, 5.33, we'll read to 39. And they said to him, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees but yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The day will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts a new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed, but the old wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, desires new, for the old is good. That's really important. No one who drinks the old wine really wants the new. Now, a couple of uh, sections to this message. First of all, let's talk about the text here. The complaint of the religious people and Jesus' reply to them. It's important to understand we're stepping into an ongoing conversation here, okay? We've kind of turned the TV on in the middle of the show. They have been talking up at this point. And in prior verses, they are um, finding Jesus having dinner at Levi, the tax collector's house. And they take issue with this. They ask him, why do you eat and drink with sinners? This is something that the Pharisees would have never done. In their minds, even the Jewish tax collectors were sold out to the Roman authority. They were traitors, and they couldn't comprehend why Jesus, a leader, a religious leader, would sit down with these people. And Jesus replies to them that those who are well are in no need of a physician, but those who are sick. In other words, these are the people that I came here for. I wouldn't miss this for the world. Jesus was drawn to the rejected. He was drawn to those who didn't fit. And he was drawn to those that the religious leaders would have turned away. So in a couple of verses, they ratchet it up a notch, which seems like more of a challenge when they, uh, they kind of accost him and they say, we fast. We fast all the time. Our disciples fast. John's disciples fast. Why don't your people fast? 
And in answering that, Jesus sets the tone for just how different a season that they are in. And he uses wedding language that we talked about a couple of weeks ago when he talks about the church being a bridegroom or being a bride. And he said, in using wedding language, he says, who fasts at a wedding? I'm here. There's a party going on right here now. I'll be gone one day. Fast then. Now, Jesus was not against fasting. So I've heard people use this passage and say, yeah, we don't have to fast. Jesus said we don't have to fast. But Jesus actually fasted. And there were times when he taught his disciples saying, when you fast. So this isn't an argument against fasting. This is a signal to the religious leaders that this is a new day and there will be an appropriate time to fast and it'll be sooner than you think, but new things are happening. It is the mark of a religious spirit to resist change of any sort. And Jesus was signifying to them that change was coming. Those with a religious spirit challenge change because, not because they think it might not be better, but because change is a sign that they're not in control. And it wasn't that they were all even necessarily that thrilled with fasting, but it was a form and a ritual that they controlled people with, and Jesus and his followers were clearly not going to be controlled. Do you think that the disciples, or I'm sorry, the Pharisees, really cared at all if Jesus' people fasted? No, they would have preferred that they just went away. What they were most concerned about is that they might stick around and that their sense of freedom would infect those who were following the Pharisees. When you're a control freak, you can't just have people walking around free. It sets all of your authority at edge. And the Pharisees had adopted this position almost of Pharaoh not wanting to let people be free. And in this story, Jesus is Moses, except he doesn't go asking for their permission. He just declares that people are going to be free. Now, if you've ever been in awkward meetings before, and probably everybody has, some of the best advice I had about an awkward meeting one time was, the meeting is never about what the meeting is about. And Jesus knew that the discussion here was not about fasting. He said the meeting is not about what the meeting is about. So he pressed beyond what they were asking initially. He recognized kind of the religious elephant in the room. And he said, you know, if you won't go there, I will. And he tells them a parable that indicates the level of change that is coming. And that it's not going to be easy for them. And in context of telling them how different things are going to be, he tells them no one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he'll tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And you can almost hear the religious people thinking, is he talking about us? And so Jesus gets even clearer with the metaphor in verse 37 when he said, no one puts new wine in old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled and the skins will be destroyed. But the new wine must be put in fresh wineskins. That new wine that Jesus was talking about was the era of grace that he was ushering in, of people who would find life in him rather than in the religious systems of the world. And he was saying putting new wine in was what he was about to do and limiting it to the old wineskins or the old religious form would burst the wineskin, and the wine would be lost. Why is he saying this? Is he really talking about wine? No, he's using a metaphor because it would have been crystal clear to those people who made wine. Wine goes through a fermenting process. It changes a lot. It expands. It morphs. 
and it burps and it puts off gases and it behaves very, very differently than old wine. If you have a low toleration for change, old wine is a safer bet for you. Jesus was, wasn't even making a statement about the old wine or what had been done in the past in contrast to the new wine or what he would do in the future. He was just saying the container that held the old cannot hold the new. The old container has stretched and it is shaped as far as it's going to shape and it's not going to stretch anymore. It will break before it contains the new thing that he's about to do. And in Luke's account of this, and this is the reason I wanted to read it from Luke rather than Matthew or Mark, Luke includes one more detail. Jesus goes on to compliment the old, saying that no one who drinks the old would want the new, because the old was aged and it was smooth and it was potent. The wine wasn't the problem, the container was. When Jesus begins to do new things, old containers break. Now, when you start talking about starting a church, uh, people always ask questions. They, they just do. I, uh, um, people who, who are for you and people who don't know what they're thinking ask questions. Uh, one of the simple questions they ask is, why, why would you do that? And it's an entirely valid question. Anybody who's ever started a church knows all of the stock answers. Uh, the stock answers are that one out of three Kansas Cityans attends a church. If the other two ever wanted to go, there would not even be remotely places for them to go. That's valid. Another reason is that new churches make room for people to be involved who maybe didn't have room to be involved in other churches because all of the roles were filled. And that's true. New churches utilize people who didn't get a chance in other places. But the deeper answer for why starting new churches is this. When Jesus does new things, old containers break. And, and Jesus says that with no animosity towards the old containers. He's not complaining about them. He's saying, no, they shaped and they morphed about as much as they're going to. They're not going to shift anymore. So if I want to do something that's new, it needs a new container. Jesus says they contain good wine, but they're not going to be able to contain the chaos or the explosion that comes with new things. So out of kindness to everybody, he asks people, will you build a new container? Will you make it flexible? Will you make it expandable? Will you hold on? Because you're going to be stretched. And because whatever you think it's going to look like, it's going to look a little different. It's going to expand. And for those who are building the new container, but are accustomed to the smooth flavor of the old wine, be aware the new wine is going to take a while to become what you think it's going to be. It doesn't happen overnight. And the new wine in early stages is fairly more disruptive than it is pleasant. It just makes sounds and it changes and it morphs and it puts off gases. And some of you are thinking, is this good recruiting language as we're starting a church? Is this like the best way to describe what this is going to be like? I'm not recruiting right now. I'm talking to my friends and I'm being honest. What God wants to do among us is different than what we've seen, maybe even different than what we imagine. And it's going to cause us to stretch and be flexible. Understanding that God uses new containers to do new things. I started to pray on Thursday morning, Lord, what do you want that container to be like? What do you want to do in us? 
and I don't pretend to know everything he has planned. That would be like the, the height of um, just being full of myself. And I would very quickly become the old container, not the new one. But the nature of new wine is that it changes. But I did hear a few things, I believe, from the Lord. And this is where kind of the prophetic portion of the message takes off a little bit. I want to draw the line here between this is what the scripture is talking about, and, and, and this is what I'm sensing from the Lord. I believe both have value, but they are, one is not like the other, if that makes sense to you. Here's the second portion of the message. This is the part that I believe God wants to do in this new container. And even as I prayed and I wrote this out, I'm very aware of my own words that I just shared about the nature of new wine. Things change and morph. It is tumultuous. It is convulsive. It's hard to define in the early days. It doesn't quite taste like what it's going to taste like. And the only reason to even mess with new wine is you want something based on current fruit. You want something that comes out of what God is doing right now. These are a couple of things. I believe God wants to reintroduce simplicity to the church. There is a propensity for well-meaning people to complicate things that they love, to make things more complicated the more they pay attention to them. And the faith described in Scripture is a far simpler affair than what we see sometimes lived out. We complicate things, even with the best of intentions. You know, imagine a, a guy retires, and uh, he decides he's going to spend his days sitting in the kitchen looking out the window at his bird feeder. That's just the height of, that's what he wants to do. So he sets out a bird feeder. I see some people laughing. Apparently somebody put out a bird feeder already. So he sets out a bird feeder. And then what was a bird feeder, he realizes he needs now a squirrel guard to keep the birds from getting to the, so he sets up a, a squirrel guard with the bird feeder. And then what was a squirrel feeder and a bird, uh, a squirrel feeder, a bird feeder and a squirrel guard becomes a bird feeder and a squirrel guard and a net for butterflies. Cause he kind of wants to cut butterflies off to this edge. And then he puts up a plastic owl, which scares away some birds and doesn't scare away others. But then he realizes with his bird feeder and his squirrel guard and his net and his plastic owl that it's scaring away all the birds. So he throws camouflage netting over the plastic owl. And then the camouflage defeats the purpose of the owl. So he buys decals of a cat to put on the window. And at some point, his wife looks out the window and says, I can't even see the bird feeder anymore. Like, I can't see what you put out there. And he admits, yeah, I took the bird feeder down three days ago to put up a telescope. I'm watching squirrels now. There are times I think that Jesus looks in the window of the church and says, I can't see the bird feeder. I, I, I can't see what we originally started out to do. And all of the things that have been added were added to be a blessing and to make it better. But in the light, where, are we feeding birds? Are we doing what we said we were going to sit down and do? That's nice, but it's not what I thought we were building. It's a lot more. It's a lot of activity. It's just not what I expected. And all the people who are doing all the building had the same intentions they did when they started. It's just that the complexity got away on them. Now, what is the bird feeder in our story? The base thing that God is intending. It is the thing that Jesus hoped to be able to look over the balcony from heaven and look down and see his people doing. In the last recorded instance where Jesus was displeased with what men were building in his name, he turned over tables and he made a whip and he said, my house 
will be called a house of prayer. He said, what I really want this to be is a place of prayer. I believe in this new container. Prayer and worship have got to be integral to what we do. It's got to be at the core. God wants to reintroduce simplicity to his church, that we would focus on him primarily and everything would flow out of that. But in pursuing all of the ministry and the things that would flow out of that, we wouldn't lose sight of the bird feeder that we sat down to make to begin with. He wants us to love him in prayer and worship and simply to love others by discipling them and reaching out to those that are around us out of overflow of that heart of prayer and worship. Matthew 5.16 tells us, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. What is the light? It's what he put in us, and it's only fostered by spending time with him. We want to live simply, display Jesus in our actions, and be more concerned with hosting his presence than anything. Because the moment he looks in the window and doesn't see what he wanted to be there, he moves on. God wants to reintroduce simplicity to the body. Another thing I really believe he wants to do is he wants a church of real amateurs. Now, before things get ironic here, painfully, let me point out the obvious. I understand that I am someone who has made my living for 30 years in ministry. This is like I've had a couple of little short-term, part-time side jobs while I was still doing that. But for 30 years, we have done this. I am a professional advocating for amateurs because God is wanting to build a church with significant input and strength from those who are not professional ministers. Not because ministry itself is not an honorable vocation, but because ministry is the calling of all believers no matter where they draw their income. Now, it makes sense for there to be leaders, and it makes sense for them to be remunerated at some point. In Luke 10, Jesus sends out his followers, and he tells them to take nothing for their own care. And then in the next verse or so, he says a labor is worthy of their hire. So in other words, those that you minister to will support you, or maybe all do some miracles, but you're going to be taken care of. There is, there's a, 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 a biblical um, reference point for that. It's not wrong. But it's not all that the Bible says about ministry. In 1 Corinthians 12, 7, it says, To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Any way you interpret that, it still means each. It doesn't mean to the professionals. It doesn't mean to those that went and got a degree in theology. It doesn't mean to those that were ordained on paper somewhere. It literally means to the entire body is the manifestation of the Spirit given for the common good. He's not talking about professional ministry. That wouldn't have even been a concept at that point. He's saying to everybody, all believers, at every growth point, in official roles and just wandering around the edges, he is manifesting the Spirit in people for the good of the whole. I'm looking at this grid of faces here, and in each box, God is manifesting his Spirit for the common good of the other boxes. You bring something to the table that God wants there. And he goes on in Romans 12, 6, Paul writes, Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. Let's, let's get active. Let's actually manifest the gift of the Spirit that he puts 
in each one of us. Now, the ministry hierarchy has done ministry in a way to make things easier. Sometimes it's easier as a professional, and I, and I don't even like that word, to do things yourself than it is to let other people do it. But the people in the body have also allowed this thinking to take place, and they believe it's easier to hire things done because it kind of takes the burden off of them. That's wrong thinking on both parties. It's kind of a codependent dysfunction, and we all suffer by agreeing to lie to one another that this is what the church was meant to be, and it's not. It's meant to be all of us contributing the gifts and the, the blessings and the insight that God has given us. The professionalization of ministry has taken the opportunity of ministry away from the average Joe, and it has stuffed the legitimate gifts of God that he has put in you. And we have grown way too accustomed to doubting the gifts that people have given people who are not in professional ministry. This is, this is how crazy it's gotten. A couple of years ago, I talked to a friend who was pastoring a large megachurch, and he was the second pastor that the church had had in 30 years. And he was getting ready to transition. He saw retirement was on its way, and so they were looking for a pastor. And he described to me the person they were looking for, and it was someone with extensive professional experience, with a very narrow, specific, advanced degree, with experience managing budgets of X millions of dollars over a long time. And as he read this list of qualifications to me, I realized they were looking for a CEO. They weren't looking for a pastor. And I challenged him and I said, do you understand that the person, that, that according to the, the description that you're looking for, neither you nor the founding pastor who built this church together would be qualified to apply for the job that you're vacating? Like you couldn't come back and get this job and you've done it for 20 years. And he's told me, yeah, Randy, it's complicated. Maybe it's too complicated. Maybe it's too complicated. I realize it's complicated, but in a post-COVID world, God's timing is simplifying things. And the large religious systems that have been helpful and well-meaning are going to be outdated. And the Lord says it is a new day, and he is making a new container for what he wants to do. And in that container, there's got to be room for more than just those that would be held up as pastors for doing the ministry. The Lord looks down and he sees people in every one of these boxes and he says, I gave them each gifts. I gave them ability and I gave them an anointing and that gift that I gave them, they kept in the box. The future of what he wants to do is you getting that gift out of the box and seeing it being used in the church in ways that maybe there was never room for you or you never pressed forward to see if it could be used. What God is building is going to require turning loose the amateurs to expand the kingdom. Key ministry, key decision-making roles will be made by people who are gifted and willing to flow in those gifts independent of an official title. Now, he's done this before. He has used amateurs to turn the world upside down. There was a group called the Disciples who were not qualified in the slightest to be in leadership roles. 
but he used them. The Bible says, turn the world upside down. But he has done this very same thing even in our own nation in the past. In 1857, in the years leading up to the Civil War, God poured his spirit out in New York City in what was called the Businessman's Revival. And it started when a group of businessmen challenged their friends to gather and pray at noon, and they thought in New York, surely we can get a large crowd of businessmen to pray. The first day, they had six. But the next day, they had 20. And within weeks, hundreds of businessmen were gathering at this church. The meeting had to be conducted on three different floors because they didn't fit in the same room. It spread to other churches as shops that used to be open all day would close at noon so the owner could go to the businessman's prayer meeting. There was a season where churches in New York City were seeing 10,000 people come to Christ every week. Between September and May, 50,000 people out of the 800,000 that lived in New York City in that day came to Jesus. And it was almost entirely led by amateurs. When the church allows amateurs to operate in their giftings, it will be the challenge of the professionals to adjust because those who are the professionals will actually be the ones holding it back and trying to bring order. And the Lord said, you know what? Order has absolutely choked us half to death. Let them go. Let them do what I've called them to do. So God wants to simplify things. He wants to turn the amateurs loose to do what he put them in to do. And finally, he wants us to adjust our gaze and our grasp. In other words, he wants us to adjust where we rest our affections, the thing that we look to as a church family corporately, but also where we put our efforts. Now, through the Bible, those who set their gaze on the Lord have always found favor before the Father. It's just a principle. Psalm 27.4, David writes, One thing I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all of the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. And the story of David is one of incredible favor in spite of massive character flaws and things that he did wrong, because when he didn't know what else to do, he would always return his gaze to Jesus or to, to God. Throughout history, there have always been those who sought to put their eyes on him when other people wouldn't give him a second glance. And what God did with those who gazed upon him compared to those who were distracted was markedly different. There was a time early in Jesus' ministry when he captured everybody's attention. Jesus is baptized. He's driven out into the wilderness where he fasts for 40 days. He's challenged by the enemy. He answers him with scripture. He returns in Luke 4 to the temple. And in the temple, he takes the scroll and he reads the words of Isaiah about his calling. He commissions himself or ordains himself almost by reading the words of Isaiah. And in Luke 4.20, it says he rolled up the scroll and he gave it back to the attendant and he sat down and the eyes of all in the synagogue were on him. In my imagination, in that moment, you could have heard a pin drop 
It's not clear if they believed him or not, but the gauntlet had been laid down. The drama had been cranked up to 10, and they marveled at him in this scene. And yet, in just a couple of verses, they want to throw him off a cliff. He had declared the words of Isaiah were about him. Now, if you knew him, you knew he was humble. If you didn't know him, you thought, boy, he is bold. The truth is he has both, and he has their attention. But over time, not everyone who found him interesting decided that he was worthy of their gaze over the long haul. In fact, more than one person in Scripture looked towards him but eventually looked away. Matthew 19, 16, Behold, a man came to him and said, Teacher, what good deed must I have to ha have eternal life? And I really believe this guy wanted to make it permanent or at least get all that he could out of what he had seen from Jesus. But when Jesus told him what it was going to cost him, to take his gaze off of his wealth as a sign of uh, security and look only toward Jesus, the Bible says the young man heard this and he went away sorrowful because he had great possessions. I think he wanted to follow Jesus. I think it was just easier for him to look to his wealth for safety and his wealth for protection than it was to gaze on Jesus and trust him for everything. Early on in his ministry, we find crowds ecstatic with Jesus. They can't even imagine going home at times. They don't even want to leave to eat because there's such anticipation about what he's going to do next. But in a relatively quick amount of time, his fame diminishes to the point where the crowds become disenchanted and they don't look at him the same way anymore. In fact, they go from gazing at him like they did in the temple to gazing on a criminal who's already been convicted and saying, release Barabbas because we're done with Jesus. Not everybody who gazes on Jesus chooses to keep their eyes on him. And the word of the Lord in the new container is look to Jesus. Don't look to the side. Don't look back. It didn't go well for Lot's wife. Don't look down. It didn't go well for Peter when he's walking on water. Look at Jesus. Adjusting our gaze to him affects our priorities. It affects our calendars. And it affects our affections and our finances. That that we gaze upon comes to rule our lives. There's a story about aliens who circled the earth observing. This is not a true story. I don't mean to break your hearts. But there's a story of these aliens that circle the earth for months. Some of you are like checking Google. Aliens? This is a weirder group than I thought. No, he, he circle, they circle the earth. And as they circle the earth for months, they observe what humans are, be, are doing and being. And finally, they descend, and they manage to land the ship in the parking lot of a Best Buy. And they go into the Best Buy, and they walk to the back, and they see the wall of televisions, and they radio out to the ship, we have found their temple. Because the assumption is, after watching people for months and circling the earth, that must be a god. Because that's what they set their eyes to for hours a day. The new wine, the new thing the Lord is doing requires people who will adjust their gaze to look to Jesus no matter what. It requires people who are not content to look at the church across the street or the latest trends or even back at their own history where, where things were easier and were good. They don't care what they've seen or what is competing for their attention. They just want to see what John saw. And it's not a repudiation of the past. It's just saying, I want to see more. I want to be one of those people like in the New Testament that says, I don't even want to go home because I'm afraid I might miss what Jesus is going to do if I take my eyes off him for a moment.
The church that gazes on him is looking towards the same man that John spoke of in the book of Revelation. It says, his eyes were like a flame of fire, his feet were like burnished bronze, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. Friends, if we can commit to giving our time and our resources to building him an altar where his presence is validated, we will be rewarded with a visitation from him. We build him a place of rest, he will sit down with us. So what he is building in the way of a new container has got to have room for people who gaze upon the Lord and look to him for security and look to him for provision and look to him because he is worthy to be looked at. Now, what he wants to adjust is just not our gaze, but also our grip. Our gaze, the thing that we look to, but our grip, the thing we put our hand to. It is the nature of any existing organization to turn inward. It is just, it's not a reflection of character. It is just the burden of grandeur. The longer something is organized, the more need it has to take care of itself and all that it has gathered along the way. When we moved to Kansas City, we moved with shipping containers that they pick up at your house and then they drop off at your, your new house. And where they go in the middle, I don't really know, but they were gone for about a month because we didn't have a new place. And so everything we owned except for each of us, and there were only five of us at the time, had a little plastic tub. Everything we, we wanted to keep were in that tub. So everybody had a couple pair of pants, a couple shoes, a couple uh, shirts, and everything was in there. So we lived that way for a month. We got into the new house, and they backed up to the house with these shipping containers, and they dropped them. I confess, I hated to open them because I knew that when I opened them, I was responsible for all of that stuff we had gathered along the way. And it actually felt good to only be responsible for the stuff in your tub. Religious structures, be they Pharisees or First Church of whatever, naturally collect stuff and stories and hurts and habits. And God says, I can't fit what I want to do in that container. So I'm going to bless that. I'm going to call it good, but I'm going to form another container to contain the new thing. And I want that new thing to adjust its gaze to Jesus. And I want it to adjust its grip, not to holding its stuff together, but to lay hold of its community in a new way. If we get our gaze and our grip right, the church should be an amazing center of worship and beholding the Lord, but also an incredible organization that meets the needs of our community around us. The larger and, and heavier and longer an organization grows, the harder it has to work just to keep all of its stuff together. And the Lord is saying, I want to build a container with no history and no stuff, so you've got the bandwidth to reach people who may never wander into any other container. I spent some time this week in a discussion with Steve Shilgren, who I talk about a lot. He is a longtime friend and a mentor. Uh, we videotaped it. I'll, I'll post it so you guys can see it. But Steve told me about an incident with uh, Larry and Jimmy Flint. Does anybody recognize the names Larry and Jimmy Flint? Larry and Jimmy Flint were uh, pornographers. Okay, so, and they were in the news constantly. In the 80s, the city of Cincinnati outlawed their little porn shop and uh, shut them down somehow, wrote some laws that they shut them down. 
Well, over a couple of years, Larry and Jimmy found a loophole and they were able to open a pornography shop in Cincinnati right across the street from the courthouse as kind of a poke in the eye of the city. And they opened up this little shop and the church was furious. The church in Cincinnati did not want that in their city and I totally get it. Pornography is wrecked lives and a city without it is better than a city with it. So they all stood up and they all protested. Steve took a slightly different approach. He was going to gaze on Jesus, but he was going to lay hold of his city. So the day that all the churches showed up to protest, Steve, who was pastoring probably the largest church in town at that day, showed up to the porn shop with a cleaning kit, and he and his wife went in to clean the toilet. Now, they weren't expecting this. And when he walked through the front door, they, why are you here? And he said, oh, I'm here to clean the toilet. And uh, as he tells the story, the, the toilet in a porn shop looks about like you would expect the toilet in a porn shop to look like. It's a mess. But they go back and they start cleaning it and workers from the shop start coming back and asking them, why are you doing this? And Steve said, the more people that would come and ask questions, the slower we would rub the brush. And we're talking and we're talking, we're telling we're doing this to show you that God loves you in a practical way. God cares about you. He wants you to know that you're important to him. And so we wanted to come and demonstrate that by cleaning the toilet. They left and a few years later, Steve was on a plane. And as he's flying, he realizes the guy in front of him is Jimmy Flint. It's one of the owners of this, this shop. And he recognized because the back of his jacket, it said Hustler Industries. He goes, I didn't even know there was an industry, but apparently there was. And as they walked off the plane, they kind of made eye contact and figured out who they were. And Jimmy said, you're that pastor who cleaned our toilet. And he said, yeah, you know, Jesus washed feet. And so cleaning toilets is kind of a, a, a modern uh, representation of that. So that's what we did. We just wanted to serve you. And Jimmy asked him, what kind of people are you? And he looked at Jimmy and he said, Jimmy, we're the Christians that don't hate you. And Jimmy Flint stood there for a moment in the airport and a tear ran down his eye. And he said, I didn't think there were any Christians that didn't hate us. I want to lay hold of a community that comes to know us as the Christians that don't hate them. Now. This isn't meaning we lower our standards. It isn't about relaxing holiness. It's about loving our community. It's about setting our gaze on Jesus and setting our hand to those around us to represent him in a way that they go, I want to see the one that you see. I want to have an encounter with the God that can make you do these kind of things, these uh, preset appointments that we read about in the Bible to do good works. When Jesus does something new, it needs a new container. And those who are trusted with building that new container who embrace it are happiest when they embrace flexibility and they live in anticipation of what is coming next. I believe, I really believe this, that the best is yet to come and we are going to see things that we can't imagine right now. If the Lord allowed us to imagine, some of us would freak out. But he said, no, I, wanna, I want you to do this in a new container because it's going to stretch and it's going to morph and it's going to change. And when it does, there's going to be wine there that is a product of the grapes that I am growing, the fruit I am growing in your life. Let's pray. Mm -hmm.